electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson, and here is what is ahead. After two days of really spectacular gains, the Bears are back in town, and one of our guests says they're going to fight to keep control of the markets. The four names she is buying right now, and the catalyst, she says, will end this bull bear tussle. Plus, the Twitter deal back on. That was the big news yesterday. The question today becomes, what is Elon Musk's master plan? Now, he may be taking a cue from the Chinese. We'll explain that one ahead. And a food and beverage edition of Earnings Exchange. We got Constellation Brands. We got ConAgra. We got your McCormick Spices on deck with results. And we have the key things to watch on how and how to position on all three. But we begin this hour with today's markets and Bob Pisani at the NYSE. Hey, Bob. Hello there, Tyler. Uh, We're down, but believe it or not, we're at the highs for the day. Let me show you some of the moves on the major averages. Dow Jones Industrial Average, we're back over 30,000. Nike, Visa, Merck, Cisco's in the green, but the banks are a problem. Goldman's of high price stock, it's weighing things down at the Dow. J.P. Morgan, same situation. S&P 500 was 3722 about an hour and a half. Uh, two and a half hours ago. And look at that rally. We've got 45 points or so. We're at the highs for the day, led by energy there. NASDAQ was also weak during the day, uh, but it too is sitting at the highs for the day. Believe it or not, down 1% is better than it was two hours ago. Let me just show you some of the NASDAQ 100 stocks. Tesla is the second worst performing stock in the NASDAQ 100. We're still waiting for the details on must deal. Uh, with Twitter. DocuSign is the worst performing uh, company there. That is right near a 52-week low. Uh, Meta is also close to a 52-week low. Netflix, 232. That stock has gone nowhere for the last couple months. Not really a big factor. Advanced Micros, uh, that's uh, 66. That's not far from a new low. The real story is in the energy sector. We have these aggressive OPEC plus production cuts. It's really pushing these energy stocks around. Uh, Look at Exxon. That's a rare day when you see Exxon up 4%. Chevron is uh, lagging a little bit, but APA, Halliburton, the oil services name, and the energy uh, exploration production companies all doing really well. This does give you a real sense of what's going on. Let me see if we could put up a, a, a full screen that shows the last three days of trading action because most of the big names are up seven, eight, not well look at this. Here you go. Halliburton, APA, Exxon, Chevron. These are just the last three trading days when we got word that there was going to be an aggressive uh, 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 rate cut pushed over uh, at, uh, at OPEC plus. So you see the big moves up there. Uh, elsewhere, I just want to note these real estate investment trusts are just having a horrible year. Of course, higher rates really hurting them. Some of these new lows today on some of the big apartment REITs, and that's been a major, major problem uh, this year, those rising interest rates. Tyler, back to you. Bob, thank you very much. Bob Pisani, stocks sliding after the S&P 500 posted its best two-day rally in two years. Our next guest says his tug of war in the market. Not over yet, because the bears don't get to be in charge very often, and when they do, they hate to let go. Joining us now, Nancy Tengler, CEO and Chief investment officer at Laffler Tengler Investments. Nancy, welcome. Good to have you with us. Well, we tested those June lows. We really went through them. Do you think we do it again? 
Well, I was wrong last time, Tyler. I, I thought we were starting to see the evidence that inflation had peaked. And, and I actually think we did see that. Um, and, and that scared the Fed. And so they came out tougher than ever. Uh, this this uh, narrative that we keep hearing is uh, Mary Daly today saying, you know, again, that that they are going to stick with it and uh, continue to raise rates. I, I'm not arguing that they shouldn't. I just think it's a question of pace. And that's what the market is terrified of, that just as they waited too long in the past, now they're going too quickly and not letting the, the data come through. So, yeah. you know, uh, one, one of the uh, analysts that we speak to um uh, repeatedly on Fed days said his worry was that the Fed was going to start too late, hang on too long and go too far. It feels like an awful lot of people feel that way, that they started too late, that they may raise too much and stay there too long. I think that's right. I just uh, penned a piece for our clients called Monetary Policy in the Rear View. And that, that's what we have. We have a group of individuals that are, that are looking at data after it's already come out and not anticipating which direction we're moving in. So that would be um, a coincident or consistent with what, what your uh, other analyst has said, which is they are going to go too long and too hard. And that's the fear. And so yeah. to that end, I think we could easily retest the load. So there are, you know, we can look at data and the Fed looks at data and some things uh, indicate that, that some of the things the Fed would like to see are beginning to maybe take hold uh, in other areas. The data aren't quite so definitive uh, and so forth. But one of the things that's interesting is that you say that CapEx in technology and in robotic spending is something to watch and that that may be one of the drivers or the balloons that lifts the market out of this morass. I hope that's true. I think we're going to learn very quickly when we see third quarter earnings um, from from the tech companies, particularly the cloud providers, and that's one of my names, ServiceNow, and then cybersecurity, which uh, CIOs have said is their top spending priority. Mm -hmm. Palo Alto Networks is how we've played that. Uh, because I think once all this sort of fear over tightening sort of subsides, then we're going to turn our attention to growth and we're going to be in a slowing growth or slower growth environment than we are now. Although the Atlanta Fed GDP now just came out at 2.6% for the third quarter. Mm -hmm. um, so that doesn't sound like a recession. And of course, we got the ISM services and that doesn't sound like a recession. But, you know, there's other places where we're seeing indications uh, that we're in a recession. So uh, some of the job openings numbers are, are, are declining. Right. You're starting to see maybe a little bit there. You mentioned ServiceNow and Palo Alto uh, Networks. I get those, too. How does CVS Health wedge its way into that list? So we are kind of um, barbelling our portfolios uh, with dividend growers. I mean, we, I've always invested in dividend growth strategies since the mid-1980s. So that's not new for us. But CVS is a, is a reliable dividend grower. Uh, it's it's in a safer part of um, re a more reliable growth area, healthcare, and then EOG Resources, which is my other name, is one that has paid is paying a three dollar regular divi, and in the last year they've paid five dollars and eighty cents in uh, special dividends, and we still think the story has a long way to go in traditional energy. And the majority, ninety five percent of their reserves are in the U.S. So there, there's a lot to like about the stock. And it's down from its highs. Let me just ask you the question about, about CVS Health. What is it, what, what is, in your view, the best part of its business today? And what is the growth driver going to be for that company in the future? Because I just have this opinion. It's just me alone. I don't think we need another CVS store. 
I've I, 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 plenty of them. They're good, I, you know, but they're, uh, you know what I'm saying? No, I totally do. And uh, they have a fabulous CEO. So that's one important thing to pay attention to. But the healthcare side, the clinics, I mean, I would not go to one of those clinics, but all the millennials in my office do. Yeah. So um, I think that is one of the areas of growth that they're going to, okay. they're really leveraging the the acquisition they made in the insurance. It's not then. the Gatorade in aisle six. It's, it's the no. other parts of it. <laughs> Nancy, thanks so much. Good to see you. You too, Tyler. Thank Appreciate you. it. All right, and for more market ideas and analysis, be sure to tune into a CNBC special, Markets in Motion. Uh, that is tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Interesting program. In a big geopolitical blow to the U.S., OPEC Plus announced today a production cut for the first time since the early days of the pandemic when demand plunged. And it wasn't just a production cut. It was a big one. We got team coverage around the globe for this uh, worldwide story. Brian Sullivan at OPEC headquarters in Vienna, Austria, with the details around the decision. Kayla Tausche in Washington with the Biden administration's response. Brian, let's get to you first. Th this two million barrel a day cut, which may not really be two million barrels a day, I'm told, but you'll explain that. Uh, but it certainly was bigger than we expected, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the chatter began a few days ago. First off, when they announced they were in person, they've had these virtual meetings, Tyler, for two and a half years. Suddenly they basically said, hey, Energy World, you come back to Vienna to this room in the OPEC headquarters. Started a kind of a chatter around a million barrels a day, then a million and a half. We got two million, but this is an important point, and it goes to what you just said. The headlines are going to scream, OPEC plus cuts 2 million barrels per day. Not technically true. That's the headline. But to your point, the reason we're going to actually probably have about 900,000 barrels, physical barrels per day taken off the market. That's still a lot. I'm not minimizing 900,000 to be one of the biggest non-COVID cuts ever. But the reason the headline screams 2 million and the actual number is going to be probably 900,000 is because a number of OPEC and OPEC plus producers were not meeting their quota. In other words, they were not at the level they were supposed to be anyway. So you really just don't even take them into account. It's only the big producers, Saudi, UAE, Kuwait, and a few others that are going to be taking the hit. There was a press conference, by the way, and, and I asked uh, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, the Saudi energy minister, if the release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in any way distorted the pricing market, and here's what he had to say. I wouldn't call it a distortion. Uh, and uh, actually, uh, it was done in the right time. And uh, if it was, didn't happen, I'm sure that... Uh, uh, things might uh, be different uh, than what it is uh, today. So there you go. Th that's the Saudi energy minister. And we're going to actually sit down with him here in a few minutes. Don't take my word for what this might mean, because it is a big deal. One of our best friends. Get over here. I'm jumping in on these random guests all day. Of course, Halima Croft needs no introduction. Uh, Halima, thanks for sticking around late. What's your quick take on what happened today? No, I mean, this was anticipated that we would see a significant... Two million? I think we had that word this morning. We talked this morning that that was the word it was going to be a two million barrel a day cut. As you pointed out, it's looking more like actually a nine hundred thousand barrel a day cut when you look at who can actually, you know, pull back production. We have mm -hmm. a number of underperformers, but clearly from the standpoint of the White House, 
it doesn't really matter at this point whether it's two million or one million. We now have to wait to see what's coming in terms of a policy response do in Washington. Think, do you think we're on the march back close to a hundred a barrel? I mean, I look at December, and that's why my question was about what comes in December, because we are looking at a situation where we have the European Union embargo set to take effect come December 5. No Russian barrels go to Europe. We have a whole set of other additional sanctions that will make it difficult to move Russian barrels to Asia. And we have a price cap plan that we are waiting to see if it launches or not. And so there's a lot of uncertainty about what we could be looking at in terms of disruption come December. Thanks for the impromptu interview again. Thank you, But that's, that's why she's the best. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Tyler, yeah. I mean, listen, um, we've got the December 5th sanctions. We've got this EU proposed price cap. We have the release of the SPR uh, going on for months now. Now we've got this cut. I mean, the, the energy war, whatever you want to call it, I mean, it just appears to kind of be ramping up. Oh, and by the way, the Russian, the deputy prime minister of Russia, who was the energy minister, was here in this building today. Highest level Russian official to visit Europe since the war and the sanctions began. Quite the scene here in Vienna, Austria. Really amazing. Great to have you there on the ground in the room where it happens. Uh, Brian Sullivan, thanks again. We look forward to your interview with the uh, Saudi minister uh, later as well. Brian Sullivan reporting from Vienna. Today's production cut coming despite the White House's attempt to sway those OPEC members to vote against the reduction. Kayla Tausche at the White House with the details. Kayla, perhaps you heard um, uh, the the previous guests there uh, mention we now await the policy response from the White House. What is it? Well, Tyler, we're starting to see some glimmers of what that could look like. And there are a bunch of ideas being put up on the board. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin has called for permitting reform to spur U.S. production here. Uh, We also have a statement from the White House suggesting and calling on Congress to essentially lessen OPEC's power, potentially pursuing some changes in antitrust uh, law to be able to essentially take some of the power away from OPEC. That is a very difficult thing to do, but it is something that the White House has put on the table. And then there is this in a statement earlier today, a joint statement from the National Security Council and the National Economic Council saying the president will continue to direct strategic petroleum reserve releases as appropriate to protect American consumers and promote energy security. And he's directing the Secretary of Energy to explore any additional responsible actions to continue increasing domestic production in the immediate term. Now, this is a a change in posture from just yesterday for the Biden administration when the press secretary said definitively there would be no additional releases being considered from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And certainly now the president and his top aides are leaving the door open to pursuing that even as they have lengthened the, the process for the existing drawdown into November. That was supposed to end this month, but now it's going to be ending after the midterm elections. Uh, for its part, Gas Buddy, uh, Patrick DeHaan over there, says that the impact on the OPEC decision could be between 15 and 30 cents per gallon at the pump for American consumers. And while that's just a fraction of the decrease that the administration has been touting in recent months, it certainly undercuts the message of the White House and Democrats as they hit the campaign trail, trying to argue that they have been easing these price pressures, not seeing them go the other way around. That's why the White House had a concerted effort in recent days, an 11th hour effort uh, to try to convince counterparts overseas, members of Congress, uh, as well as companies operating in the industry, that there would be drastic effects on the economy. But clearly that's a message that OPEC uh, fell on deaf ears. 
All right, Kayla Tausche, thank you very much, and you'll be watching all day for the uh, reaction from the White House. Kayla Tausche, thank you. All right, coming up, owning financials in a rising rate environment should be a no-brainer, but not every bank is created equal. Up next, we'll speak with the head of Wafed about how his bank is outperforming its peers this year. Plus, McCormick, Constellation, ConAgra, all report earnings before the bell tomorrow morning. We got beverages, we got spices, we got grains, we got everything. We got those results with a special food and beverage edition of Earnings Exchange. We'll be back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Well, the Fed's tightening plan may be spooking markets, but Main Street may be finally getting a little bit of relief as gas and home prices come off the uh, summer boil. And some, one beneficiary of rate hikes and increased consumer confidence, regional banks, this year, WAFED, Washington Federal, has seen income from loan interest rise 6.6%. And despite rising rates, loan demand remains strong, with new loan originations up 18% year over year this past June. And Wall Street is taking notice. Regional banks outperforming both big banks and the broader market in 2022. With us now, Brent Beardall, president and CEO of Washington Federal, or WAFED. How are you, Brent? Good to see you. I'm doing very well, Tyler. Let's talk, about, let's talk about two areas that I think are particularly sensitive right now. One would be mortgage loan growth. Uh, how are you, what are you seeing there? And then commercial real estate. What are you seeing there? Yeah, there is no question that the Fed's actions are, are have, having an impact, right? We have seen, uh, as I think was announced earlier today, the mortgage rate on the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage all the way up to 6.75%. That's more than double it was what it was a year ago. So demand has just plummeted. Uh, for us, our applications are down over 50%, and I think that's better than the industry in, in totality. What about commercial real estate? What is the demand like there? Yeah, commercial real estate, the demand seems almost unquenchable. Uh, it, clearly, the increasing cost of financing are having an impact. But the reality is the majority of commercial real estate is housing related, um, whether that be uh, multifamily housing, whether that be, uh, you know, retirement homes, so forth. And we're still seeing in our markets, you know, 95% occupancy on multifamily and year over year rent gross of about 15%. So even though financing costs are going up, it's harder for these deals to pencil for the sponsor. We're still seeing sponsors wanting to move ahead. So builders are still building, which is what builders do, right? 
builders are still building, which is exactly what builders do. And one of the things that we're seeing and that we're hearing about anecdotally is we're hearing some of the large national builders are looking to sell some of their inventory of lots to some of the large multifamily for this build for rent category, uh, just because there is so much demand for rent, uh, rental units. And if you look at what's hap happening in terms of affordability for new single family homes with, you know, a 6.75% mortgage, more people are going to be looking to rent than buy. Let's look at, 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 let's go down to the main street level and what you're seeing there among businesses who are taking out commercial loans. They're not commercial real estate. They're not mortgages. These are business loans. What are you seeing there uh, among the businesses that you service? Is there any slackening of demand? Are they postponing capital improvements? Uh, what, what can you tell us? Yeah, just like everything we're seeing in the economy, that we get mixed messages. Uh, some people are clearly pulling back. Uh, people are nervous about the R word, right? Is the recession uh, looming? What does it mean? What will the recession look like? While others are seeing record profit margins, uh, record amount of demand, uh, we were just speaking to some local restaurant owners here in Seattle, and they are having their best years that they've ever had, not only from a revenue standpoint, but from an income standpoint. Uh, the other thing that we're seeing throughout our markets, you know, hospitality was one of the industries that was hit so hard during the pandemic. Uh, but coming out of the pandemic, uh, these hotels are doing phenomenally well. Occupancy rates are well above where they were in 2019. And their profit margins are through the roof because they're charging more than they ever have. And they've been able to basically cut back on their labor. So their profit margins yeah. are going higher than they've ever seen. Two quick questions to conclude. Number one, you operate in, I think it's eight states, mostly a sort of a spine down uh, the, the, the far and intermountain west with the exclusion of, of California. Which state is, in your view, the healthiest right now? I bet it comes down to Nevada or Texas. Yeah, you know, it would be hard to say uh, which of Nevada or Texas. Utah is also doing phenomenally well. Mm -hmm. we, we are so fortunate to be in our eight western states. You, you look where people want to live. Uh, it's basically our eight Western states. We're, we're seeing net immigration. We have seen it, and I believe we will continue to see it. Um, the majority of these state governments have been very pro-business. Uh, they've taken the pandemic seriously, but they've said we are not going to close down, and you've seen it in the economic vitality of those states. There probably isn't a, a city in America that has seen greater real estate price increases than Seattle over the past two decades, let's say. Are you beginning to see, with mortgage rates going up where they are, are you beginning to see some slowdown in price increases or maybe even uh, some, some, some price declines? We are uh, seeing some decrease in prices, not, not only a slowdown, but some decreases in prices. But I think that's healthy, Tyler. Uh, we went too far too fast. And, you know, if we end up with a 5, 10 or 15 percent decrease in prices, I think that's OK. As you pointed out on the intro, that's good for consumers. Uh, one of the things that people don't fully comprehend is the amount of cash sitting in bank accounts for both businesses and consumers. Going into the pandemic, there was, I think, what, 13 trillion dollars sitting in deposits on U.S. banks. Today, that number is 18 trillion dollars in deposits. So I think as you see some softening in some of these asset classes, uh, you know, residential real estate, I think you'll see buyers swoop in. All right, Brent. Good to see you. As always, Brent Beardall of Wafed. We thank you. Appreciate you having me. You bet.
Well, the Dow uh, flickered positive there for just a moment. I noticed at the end of that interview. Uh, I think it's back negative right now, but we'll we'll follow it. Still ahead, what has Musk got to do with it? If he wants to turn Twitter into a so-called super app, what's it going to take? What does it mean? And does it have any real chance at success? We will debate that when the exchange returns after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. A wild and woolly day. Welcome back to the exchange markets right now. A sort of flirting with the flat line, I guess you would say. Down 430 at the lows on the Dow, uh, up 29 at the highs a few moments ago. Right now down about 37 points, but back above notably 30,000, which we cleared yesterday. Rate sensitive sectors, real estate and utilities, they are among the worst performers today. And in fact, energy is the only uh, one of the 11 S&P 500 sectors that is in the the green right now. And there you see it uh, perhaps responding uh, to what uh, uh, Brian was reporting about earlier today, that uh, production cut in oil uh, pushed through by OPEC today. All of the mega cap names are lower in technology like uh, Alphabet, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and uh, most conspicuously of all, Tesla down four and a quarter percent. Tesla tracking for its third straight negative week and its worst one since May. Now to Mr. Frank Holland, who's back with a CNBC News update. Hey, Frank. Hey there again, Tyler. Here's what's happening at this hour. An appeals court has agreed to expedite the Justice Department's appeal of the order appointing a special master to review documents seized at former President Trump's Florida estate. The court orders that briefs from both sides, they must be complete by November the 17th. President Biden just landing in Florida to view the damage from Hurricane Ian and speak with locals. The head of FEMA is saying that Ian is perhaps one of the most costly disasters that we have seen in many years. And for the first time in 20 years, a Russian cosmonaut is lifting off for space from the U.S. Anna Kakina is one of four people aboard the SpaceX rocket headed for the International Space Station. Among the crew, Nicole Mann, who will be the first Native American woman to orbit Earth. And on the news tonight, easing the workload of of nurses with the help of robots. How offloading routine tasks could ease stress and fight burnout. That is tonight at 7 Eastern on the news. Tyler, back over to you. Mr. Holland, thank you very much. Still ahead, Constellation Brands, ConAgra, and McCormick on deck with results. Uh, we have the action, the story, and the trade on, uh, on earnings exchange. That's next. Welcome back, everybody. Time now for Earnings Exchange. And today, uh, we head to the grocery store. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on Constellation Brands, ConAgra, and McCormick. First up, uh, we've got Constellation Brands. Shares are down about 6% this year, outperforming the Staples sector, which is off by about 12%. Uh, Vice names uh, that uh, can typically hold their own in an economic downturn. But with a spotty revenue record, beating estimates in only 10 of the past 20 quarters. So will the current slowdown mean another miss? Frank Holland has the story. Hey, Frank. 
Well, hey there, Tyler. You know, really the question here when we look at Constellation brands is guidance. Most companies, it's all about their revenues and their EPS. I'm not saying it doesn't matter here, but it's really about guidance, especially when it comes to their beer business, which is about 80% of overall revenues. So there were some thoughts after last quarter when Constellation brands beat estimates, they might raise that guidance, um, but they just didn't. Uh, there was also some deals with the company's founders and converting shares of stock. I don't want to get in the weeds with that, but it just didn't happen. But, and this is a good but, a rare good but in this economy, um, <clears throat> Constellation Brands has actually owned quite a boom over the last three months. The sales of their products have uh, outstripped the rest of the beer industry, especially when it comes to the products of Modelo and Corona, both of them exceeding the growth in beer overall. But beer is doing very well as we face what could be a recessionary environment overall. So the question is, are they going to raise that guidance with their sales way up over the last three months compared to the three months in the previous year? Coming up on the call, also important to note comments about recession from the CEO, Bill Newland. On the last call, he said beer, especially when it comes to luxury beer, which technically Corona Modelo is, is an affordable luxury that seems to do well in a recessionary environment. So the question is, do they still believe that? And will we see a guidance raise? All right, Frank Holland, thank you very much. Uh, Delano Sapporo is with us now from New Street Advisors, CNBC contributor. Delano, uh, what do you think about Constellation? Tyler, Constellation is one that I do not own, but if I was someone that was holding this stock, um, one of the things I would look at is that it's trading kind of expensive. You mentioned the staple sector. It's actually trading above where the average of the staple sectors um, is trading. Um, but on the positive side, as Frank was focusing a lot on the beer, I actually do like that they have about a 13% market presence in the wine market in the U.S., which is obviously strong, and they have stronger margins and stronger cash flow on that side. Um, what could give you know investors pause here is that they have a 39% ownership in Canopy Growth, which is a volatile you know company that trades volatile. Uh, volatile. So um, holding here, I think there may be a little bit of bump where people take profits if earnings are strong. So I would hold if I was an investor here. All right, let's move on now uh, to uh, ConAgra brand. Shares lower by about 3% this year. Uh, food and grocery items seen price spikes because of inflation. But ConAgra pointed to strong growth in its frozen foods and plant-based offerings last quarter. But with budgets tightening, will the positive momentum continue? Let's bring in Seema Modi for the story here. Hey, Seema. Tyler, this will be an important read on inflation and the consumer. Last quarter, we did hear from CEO Sean Connolly, who said if and when a recession unfolds, you'll start to see the consumer spend less money outside, eating out less, and opt for cooking at home and spending more time inside the home. So the question is, is that exactly what he's seeing in the third quarter? And it somewhat echoes what we heard from Walmart CEO Doug McMillan over the summer, if you remember, where he said that the consumer is under pressure and in some cases is trading down, opting for canned goods. So that will be what investors look for when Conagra reports earnings. This is also a popular dividend play, Tyler, with a dividend yield averaging 4%. But now with the two-year offering the similar amount, there'll be much focus about its uh, buyback and capital allocation plan when the company reports earnings. I would point out year-to-date stock is down, yes, about 2 to 3%, but still vastly outperforming its peers and the S&P 500s. Uh, 20% decline. All right, Seema, stick around. We're going to get right back to you. But meantime, Delana, what do you think here of uh, ConAgra? 
Yes, Tyler. Another one I do not own, but I like the valuation better, trading at 13 times forward P. Um, as Timo's mentioned, the, the consumer is a big play here. And obviously with the staples, you're looking at that. But they've done a great job of keeping that pricing power and battling any of the supply chain issues or any increased price production um, cost for the, on that side for them. Um, and in July, management raised guidance. That was a strong sign. They were showing strength in the demand and the demand keeping pace. Um, so this is a, one that I would hold or buy if an investor has cash to do so. All right, let's move on to McCormick. Uh, the shares are down uh, more than 25% this year. The Spice Company cut full-year guidance last month, saying high inflation, supply chain woes. Uh, they're pinching profits there. Seema, can McCormick bounce back uh, from this somewhat bland uh, outlook and, and deliver a little pepper? Yeah, not so, not so spicy. But I will point out, this was one of those pandemic beneficiaries when more people were at home testing out recipes, baking. We did see sales of spices rise. Uh, but this year, the story has changed in that supply chain issues, rising input costs, that has really dominated the story. The company has already cut its financial guidance for the year twice. So expectations are a bit lower going into this quarter. We'll see if the company can, can uh, provide a story to Wall Street that, yes, in this environment where prices are rising, consumers are looking for more cost-effective options as they uh, try to make dinner and make it work for their family. All right, Delano, what do you say about McCormick? I actually do like spices, Tyler, but this one I would be underweight just because some of the reasons that Simo is mentioning. You have higher costs, which has affected earnings last quarter. You have supply chain issues, which management is all... Management is all it, realized and obviously said and they're doing things to combat this but they also have you know china plant lockdowns that they dealt out with last quarter um and they, they even mentioned demand softness which is obviously a thing that investors don't want to see um so sales growth is not showing the same set of strength you'd like to see um so this was one i would i would kind of be cautious on for investors all right delano thank you very much sima modi thank you as well and coming up a thousand bucks a month no it's not rent for a studio apartment or a winning scratch-off ticket prize it is what some Americans are now paying for auto loans. We'll dig into the staggering numbers next when the exchange returns in two. Welcome back, everybody. The ongoing new and used car shortages causing prices to spike. And combined with rising interest rates, auto loan payments are now crossing the four-digit mark in many cases. And a surprising number of people already willing, able to pay up. Phil LeBeau joins us now with those details. So, $1,000 a month for a car. First time I heard about this, Tyler, you know, we had a few of these a couple of years ago. I thought, well, who are these people who are doing this? Well, now a lot of people are doing this. This is data from Edmonds, and look at the increase in the percentage of auto loans in these respective months that included a $1,000 a month payment. $1,000 a month! Back in March of 21, it was just 6% of buyers. Last month, 14% of those who took out a new vehicle auto loan said, yeah, I'll write you a check for at least $1,000. We went to Adams Toyota uh, in Lee Summit, Missouri, just outside of Kansas City. We've talked to Scott Adams a number of times over the years, and we said, what are you seeing in terms of the people who are taking out these $1,000 loans? And he said, not only are they taking out these loans, but increasingly, they want to spread out the payments as long as possible, seven and eight year, even 10 Ten-year loans are becoming a little more frequent. Bottom line is, he says more and more people are just comfortable with these payments. I believe the average car sale last month was the car was about fifty thousand dollars. So you're talking with at least fifty percent of the people on any sort of sport utility, any sort of truck, 
are going to be at $1,000. Here's something else to think about. As you take a look at the EV automakers, and we're talking about Tesla, Rivian, Lucid, the average EV costs well over $50,000. Edmonds is saying that last quarter, one out of every four people who said, yeah, I want an EV, committed to paying at least, at least $1,000 a month. Let's take a look at the legacy automakers. Remember, the the sales rate, Tyler, is going to come in at about 13.7, 13.8 million for this year. If you look at the retail sales, about 12 million every year in the U.S. 80% of those are financed. We did the math. This means more than about 1.3 million people this year, at this current rate of 14%, are going to take out auto loans with a thousand dollar a month payment. Think about that. Yeah, oh, that's it's just staggering. I mean, we heard earlier that people have a lot more cash, so maybe more people are putting more cash down, or they're able to buy uh, a car sure. with cash. But but the point remains. People are going to be stretched, aren't they, in, in trying to make these loans? I wonder what we're going to see two and three years from now in terms of uh, repossessions. Right. The, so what you're asking about is repos, delinquencies, right. defaults. Usually, that's a lagging indicator. And usually, right. and we've talked with the people at Experian, they are not seeing an increase above historical averages at this point. Mm-hmm. Now, we hit a recession. We hit higher unemployment. That's when you start to see all of that tick in, because that's when people ultimately say, "Okay, I can't make a payment. The one interesting note, Tyler, during the Great Recession, we saw a lot of people who said, I'll walk away from my home before I give up my car or truck. People don't want to give up. That's an interesting dynamic that we saw for the first time uh, during the recession. Really true. People are very, very they'll have the electricity turned off before they give up their car. Yeah. Phil LeBeau. Thanks. All right, still ahead, Twitter unable to eke out a second day of gains amidst the broader sell-off. Despite Elon Musk proposing to stick to his original buyout plan yesterday, shares uh, up 63% from their year lows, but Musk will pay a premium for Twitter as its market cap now hovers around $39 billion. We will dig into how the billionaire could upend the social media company next. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of Twitter giving back some of yesterday's gains. Now that Elon Musk has proposed to stick by his original buyout plan, the conversation shifts to what he plans to do with Twitter. Musk perhaps giving a clue on his own Twitter page, hinting he could fold it into a so-called super app he calls X. But would that catch on with users? And will it require him to buy up other apps as well? Let's ask a couple of experts. CNBC tech correspondent Steve Kovac is here. And Wall Street Journal tech columnist Joanna Stern joins us as well. She's a CNBC contributor who I had the pleasure of running into last week at the Loeb Awards in New York City. Joanna, welcome. What do you think here? What is a super app? Well, Super App, we should start, is is the dream of every U.S. tech company. It's a single app that has many apps in it, and that means you never have to leave that app to do everything. Payments, shopping, get your news, message, and it's all in one app. So, again, you never leave the app because it's super. It's its own ecosystem. Correct. Its own walled garden, if you will, right? Um, you have operating systems in some areas. Well, we all have operating systems on our phones. But then there's this idea that what if one app could just do a lot of what that operating system's already doing, right? Have the messaging, have the payments, have all the sort of infrastructure that allows those apps to talk to each other or what they call mini apps in this Steve, there are examples where this has been 
rolled out. Yeah. Most of them are in Asia, China, Korea, uh, Vietnam, and elsewhere. How have they done, and what has the uptake been? Extremely well. So the best example of this is WeChat, which is owned by the Chinese internet giant Tencent. They have over a billion users, and like Joanna was saying, you can do everything in this app. Texting, as the name implies, you can hail a, a car similar to Uber. You can buy things both in physical retail stores or just shop online like you would through Amazon. So you, Tyler, you probably have a separate app for all of those features. This happens all in one. And to Joanna's point, this has been tried in the U.S. to various degrees of success. Facebook is constantly stuffing new features inside the app and taking them away and trying to figure out how to build their own super app. Uber has talked about it to some degree. Even FTX, the crypto exchange, has talked about it. And But the problem here is Western users just don't seem to take it up the same way Asian users do. So that's going to be the challenge for Elon Musk. Does he have some kind of secret sauce or some you know game-changing way to get us and convince us to use a super app instead of a separate app for all these things. So, we Joanna, like to do. This, this sounds to me a little bit like the cable bundle. You know, in other words, you 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 subscribe to a to a to a super app, and you get all the channels and all the things you want. Are these for pay apps? These super apps, or do you get them for free? Well, I think actually payment is core to this, right? So, I want to talk about my electrician, my plumber, the babysitter for my kids. All of them now, when they bill me, are they are using different apps to bill me, Venmo, Zelle, Apple Pay. The idea with this app is one central payment system. So you can pay all these bills, all these places, as Steve mentioned, shopping, all through this app. So yes, to your point, it is sort of a bundle, right? All of these uh, stores and retailers and apps come to this app for an underlying payment structure. The question, as Steve said very clearly, is do U.S. users or Western users want this? We have had a very strong inclination to have an operating system where there's an app for that, a different app for that. I'll tell you one thing that I would like would be the idea that I would probably have only one password as opposed to <laughs> yes. 75 or 80 yes. logins and passwords here. I mean, that, that, that would be a real convenience. On the other hand, I think I would be very suspicious of having uh, seeded so much of my digital life and my identity to one provider. Yeah, that, that's part of the problem, too. And so... Look, let me just demonstrate how important this app is, is, Tyler. When two years ago, Donald Trump tried to take it at WeChat away from the United States. He tried to ban it because mm -hmm. it's owned by a Chinese company. There was a collective freak out here because it's the only way Chinese Americans can talk to their friends and family over in China because so many other apps are banned. So there's so much tied into there. And to your point, yes, we, we, we would have to ask ourselves if Elon Musk does turn this into his vision, do we want to give that much authority and power to one person or one company? And uh, it seems like right now, Western users have said, no, we'd rather kind of spread it out and make yeah. it, you know, spread the love here. Final thought, uh, Joanna, here. Uh, were you surprised to hear what Musk ultimately decided to do, which is basically say, okay, I'll pay the full price? I, I mean, look, and never surprised with Elon Musk. We don't, we don't know. We have no idea. I, I was surprised now to see this super app idea because, right, we've been hearing for months or when, when he did announce the deal, he was interested in doing more around, along the lines of uh, the out, working on the algorithm for Twitter Finally, here we're seeing some bigger idea of what the app could be to him. But again, it's sort of like, did someone just whisper that in his ear? And he was like, yeah, let's let's tweet that today. Joanna Stern. Appreciate it. Thank you. Steve Kovac. Thank, thank you. you as well.
All right, coming up, crypto criminals, uh, but it's not Bitcoin they're stealing. We'll dig into the industry's $4 billion crime problem. That is next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I want to get one more thing before we go, and that's crypto. Bitcoin has lost more than half its value this year, but the drop in prices may not be as concerning as the fact that criminals are employing crypto-adjacent technology to hide illegal activity. Kate Rooney joins us now with that story. Hey, Kate. Hey there, Tyler. That's right. Criminals are taking advantage of some of the newer technologies in crypto and the thousands of currencies out there. Research firm Elliptic has some new data on the scale of this. So since the start of 2020, there's been roughly $4 billion in illicit crypto transfers. Most of that is coming from three key technologies they point out here. The first is decentralized exchanges. That falls broadly under something called decentralized finance. You may have heard the term DeFi as well. It doesn't have intermediaries, and that's by design, but that accounted for about a third of all crypto stolen. And then coin swaps, that lets users transfer crypto within or across different blockchains without having to open a a new account. And as Elliptic puts it, these cater almost exclusively to a criminal audience. And then finally, bridges. Those act as a middleman for swapping assets across blockchains, which aren't always compatible. And while cryptocurrency transactions are anonymous, they are usually traceable, and that's actually helped law enforcement. In some cases, the Colonial Pipeline is the big example, but it's harder to trace as criminals target that money moving across these different assets and blockchain. They call that chain hopping, and the Treasury Department is also paying attention here. They called out chain hopping by name in an FSOC report on financial stability last week. Tyler, back to you. So let me ask you a couple of questions here. I guess the, the criminals who are who are perpetrating some of these uh, actions, some of them are into ransomware. Some of them are into uh, inv- identity theft and other invasions. But I wonder whether a lot of them are into old style money laundering. That's right. A lot of this has to do with money laundering. So it might start with something like a hack. And that is actually still the biggest category When you look at where the money's going, it's still from just your classic stolen funds off of an exchange. That's the the number one thing. But money laundering is moving to some of these bridges and some off of exchanges. And a lot of the U.S. exchanges and the larger global exchanges have looked a little bit more like banks in recent years. They followed some of the know your customer laws that banks have to also comply with. And as a result, a lot of the money laundering activity has moved from some of the more classic exchanges that are highly regulated to some of the smaller exchanges, offshores, and and money laundering is still a big issue. It's one of the things regulators are really trying to figure out how to clamp down here. Do you watch Ozark, Kate? You ever seen (laughs) Ozark? Uh, I love Jason Bateman. I'm thinking Marty Bird is all over (laughs) this. Marty Bird would love this. He is all over this stuff. So (laughs) just very quickly, yes or no, do the feds have the firepower to, to control this? Yes, but the crypto industry has pushed back on the way that they're doing it. There's been some sanctions that they haven't agreed with, but it seems like, yes, it just might not be something the industry is too happy with. Kate Rooney, thanks. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? 
AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.